Luke chapter 5, starting with verse 27. After these things, he, being Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink? And he said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. Then he spoke a parable to them. He said, No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear, and also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and will be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new, for he says, the old is better. If you're taking notes this morning, I've titled our time in God's Word, A New Work a new work. And we'll look at three things from the text this morning. A new direction, a new acceptance, and a new construct. A new direction, a new acceptance, and a new construct of this title, A New Work. Let's look at this uh, new direction that we see. It's very clear what takes place here. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, at least from our vantage point, it wasn't so much a beautiful thing to everyone's vantage point. But the calling of Levi, after these things he went out, verse 27, and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, counting his money, no doubt. And he said to him, follow me. And he left all, and he rose up, and he followed him. Verse 29, it tells us, then Levi gave him, Jesus Christ, a great feast in his own house. He left everything. He, he left it all and gave his heart and gave his life to Christ. And we see that he throws Jesus this gigantic feast, invites all the other tax collectors. You've got to meet, you've got to meet my new Lord and Savior. That's why we've got to invite people. We've got to say, you've got to meet my Lord and Savior. It was his natural response. It is the natural response to tell people good news. This was the good news he'd received. And what we see in chapters 4 and 5, if you've been with us, Luke records in chapter 4 and 5 that Jesus, remember he healed the demon possessed back in the fourth chapter. He's reached out and he literally touched, remember he was willing, he literally touched with his own hands which was strictly forbidden, he touched and healed a leper. Nobody touched lepers. You weren't even allowed to go near them. They had to cry out unclean. Uh, he has forgiven the sins, which only God can do, which begs the question, who is Jesus? 
which only God can do. He's healed the, healed the, uh, forgiven the sins and healed the paralytic, also in chapter 5. Now these things, when Jesus did these things, they repulsed and they offended the religious leaders. They weren't happy that Jesus touched lepers. They weren't happy that he was saying, I forgive you your sins. These things repulsed and offended the religious leaders. But then, just when they thought they couldn't possibly be offended anymore, they were. Jesus takes them to another level of offense. Nobody forgives an IRS agent. Right? I'm kidding. You know, I remember, uh, this is actually pretty funny. Um, when I was, before I was saved, my demeanor was different. But, um, and the people would say, you know, I'll say how I used to be or this, that, but I can't see that at all. Hopefully that's a good thing. Hopefully people would say the same about you. But I remember I, I took these, you ever remember take these standardized like Myers-Briggs and these different test things that you take uh, when you're in college or high school and they kind of give you things. And one of the things that I tested, this was, I didn't even like it. It really bothered me. But I took this one standardized test, and it said that my demeanor was most like an IRS agent. <laughs> I kid you not. I didn't even like that. Because I was a, I was a broadcast journalism major. It just bothered me. I didn't tell anybody, but I kept that to myself. Now I'm telling you all. I don't really care anymore. I was most said my attitude, my, my personality type was most like an IRS agent. And it, and it really was saying that you should pursue ta- uh, a you know, life in tax law or something, which I didn't. I resisted that completely. But I'm sure there was truth to it. I don't know what it even meant. But you and I, we live in a time that, you know, you look at all the scandals currently in the IRS. All kinds of things. And people generally don't like paying taxes to begin with. And especially when the tax load gets bigger and bigger and bigger. This is all through history. Nobody likes exorbitant tax. And then if you have the person who's receiving the tax and you see that they're living really, really good, then it bothers you even more. Because if we're paying all those taxes and the tax folks are living really wealthy, which was the case in the Roman period, then it gets really bothersome. But for the Jews, it went deeper than that. More than you know, most people's natural disdain for tax season and the IRS in general, audits and all the things that come with it. And yet, Jesus knowing how they feel about tax collectors, handpicks a tax collector. Handpicks him. Walks right by his office and says, Levi, come and follow me. I've grabbed a fisherman, and I've grabbed some others. I need me a tax collector in the inner circle. He even invites him to be one of his followers, and ultimately he will become one of the 12 disciples and one of the 12 apostles, the men that will be the start, starting point of the church leadership. They'll someday sit on 12 thrones in the new kingdom. Isn't that amazing? A tax collector on one of the 12 thrones that God will have for them. Luke refers to uh, 
him as Levi, but it's almost a surety uh, that he's also Matthew, also known as Matthew. And interestingly enough, this name Levi, so he went by two names, Matthew and Levi. This name Levi was only given to people who were in the tribe of Levi. So it's highly, highly likely that he was a Levite and that his chosen path by birth would have been to work in the temple, not in the tax office, as a Levite. So this is, this is the height of anathema to the religious leaders. You were born a Levite, you should be working in the temple, and you traitor, you're working in the tax office? The tax office? Taking taxes from the Jews to give to the Romans? He collected taxes for Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch of Galilee, and he was getting very wealthy in the process, very wealthy. Now, keep in mind, people that like money and love money always are bothered by people who have even more money. You ever notice that? Because there's never, once you love money, you've never had enough. You find someone that when they used to make $50,000 a year, they were so excited because they used to make $22,000 a year and can barely get by. Then someday they, have, they, they, they kind of get promoted and they do well and all, they're making $150,000 a year. But then they, they don't think that's much. And then they look at people that make $500,000 a year and they're like, if only I made that. And then the person with $500,000 a year looks at the person that makes a million and says, but they're a millionaire. The person that's a millionaire looks at Warren Buffett and says, it goes on and on. The Pharisees, they did pretty well. Don't feel bad for them economically. They also received the tithes and offerings of the people, and they imposed tithes that Jesus never intended across everything. We'll get to that later in the book of Luke, where they also went far more in grabbing money from the people, just like some of the money-hungry televangelists do today, grabbing even more from the people than God ever intended. So these guys also liked money, the, the Pharisees and the leaders, they liked the good life that they had. They had the best seats in the marketplace. They were well-respected. They got lots of pats on the back. They had their own niche, but they certainly didn't like a Jewish person being a tax collector because that was filthy. They were totally despised. The, um, the Jews that took the role of tax collectors, they were completely excommunicated from the Jewish faith completely excommunicated from the Jewish faith. If you chose tax collector and you were Jewish, goodbye to the synagogue. They were despised, they were loathed as the worst of people. And Levi, his other name was Matthew, as I mentioned. Matthew, uh, or Matiyahu in the Hebrew, means gift of Yahweh. Oh, that must have bothered him. He was no gift to them. They looked at him as the lowest of low. He was not a gift to the Jews. He was a traitor to be despised. Now, knowing that the Pharisees themselves also liked money, Jesus tells us this specifically, knowing that they also liked money, and clearly Matthew liked money, and he was making even more money than they were, that even bothered them. Yeah, let's say they were pulling in 100 grand, and he was pulling in 300 grand. And just kind of our modern financial 
understanding. That even bothered them even more because he had traded in the Jewish faith, he traded in the Levitical priesthood, but he was actually making a lot of money and making it on the backs of the Jewish people. But could it be, just I was thinking about this as I was studying and meditating this text, could it be, think about Levi or Matthew for a second, could it be that Matthew or Levi, as he grew up, as a young boy, in a Levite household, and had met many of the Levitical priesthood, had met many Pharisees, could it be that he saw so much hypocrisy in the priesthood that he opted for more money and more wealth and to go be a Roman? Just, that never happens, does it? Could it be that a young person would actually grow up around people that are quote-unquote born-again believers and see so much hypocrisy and just say, to heck with it. Why don't I just go live in the world and live like the world and do really well for myself? Many have made that decision. Now, it's not a good decision. It's not the right decision because not every priest was living that way. There were some godly ones, but there was an awful lot that had the same mindset of these Pharisees that looked down and thought of him as the lowest of low. You guys ever heard of Jim Cimbala? He's pastor of um, Brooklyn Tabernacle. Um, he tells a story. He preaches uh, there in Brooklyn, and uh, they have a great ministry to the slums and the difficult uh, areas of New York. But he tells the following story. It was Easter Sunday. I was so tired at the end of the day that I just went to the edge of the platform. I pulled down my tie and sat down and draped my feet over the edge. It was a wonderful service with many people coming forward. The counselors were talking with all these people. As I was sitting there, I looked up at the middle aisle, and there in about the third row was a man who looked about 50, disheveled, filthy. He looked at me rather sheepishly as if saying, could I talk to you? We have homeless people coming in all the time asking for money or whatever. So as I sat there, I said to myself, though I am now ashamed of it, what a way to end a Sunday. I've had such a good time preaching and ministering. Here's a fellow probably wanting some money for more wine. He walked up. When he got within about five feet of me, I smelled a horrible smell like I've never smelled in my life. It was so awful that when he got close, I, I would inhale by looking away, then talk to him and look away to inhale. Because I couldn't inhale facing him, I asked, what's your name? He said, David. How long have you been on the street? Six years. How old are you? 32. He looked 50, hair matted, front teeth missing, a wino with eyes slightly glazed. Where did you sleep last night, David? An abandoned truck. <clears throat> I keep in my pocket a money clip that also holds some credit cards. I fumble to pick one out, thinking, I'll give him some money. I won't even get a volunteer. They're all busy talking with others. Usually we don't give money to people. We take them to get them something to eat. I took the money out, and David pushed his finger in front of me and said, I don't want your money. I want this Jesus. The one you were talking about. Because I'm not going to make it. I'm going to die on the street. I completely forgot about David and started to weep for myself. I was going to give a couple of dollars to someone God had sent to me. So easy it is. 
I could make the excuse I was tired. There is no excuse. I was not seeing him the way God sees him. I was not feeling what God feels. But oh, did that change. David just stood there. He didn't know what was happening. I pleaded with God, God, forgive me. God, forgive me. Please forgive me. I am so sorry to repent to you this way. I'm sorry. I'm here with my message and my points, and you sent me somebody, and I am not ready for it. Oh, God. Now, this was Jim Simbla crying out to God. Something came over me. Suddenly, I started to weep deeper, and David began to weep. He fell against my chest, and as I was sitting there, he fell against my white shirt and tie. I put my arms around him, and there we wept on each other. The smell of his person became a beautiful aroma. True story. Brooklyn, New York. And here's the point. The ones that look so filthy to the religious, pious heart, and it can be in any of us, amen, are the very ones that Jesus connects to. Tax collectors are filthy to ancient Jews. But so are a lot of other people filthy to a lot of other people based on their ethnicity, based on their race, based on what they do for a living, based on their economic standing. All of those things, people look down their nose and they do not have time for the person that Jesus has time for. I really believe that if we as the body of Christ get back to truly loving the lost, as it's been well said, we won't, we won't lack for an audience. If we were to get back to truly loving lost people, whatever condition they're at, I don't care if they're super wealthy, I don't care if they're homeless on the street and all points in between. Like Jesus, we'll see the opportunities to share the Lord. We'll see them. We're missing them because we are not looking with his eyes in so many cases. And, it does, and, it, and pastors are guilty of this. I'm guilty of it. I mean, I don't know anyone that's not guilty of this. Jim Simbola was honest enough to just weep there about it because any of us would be guilty of the same. But what a work Jesus does with Matthew, with Levi. Levi left it all. He goes from loving making money and lots of it and working for the Romans, and having the good life, he walked away from all of it. Just like Peter walked away from the fishing business, he walked straight away and said, I've seen a lot of rabbis in my life, but I've never seen a rabbi like you. I want this Jesus, just like David, the homeless man, said. I want this Jesus. Jesus, I don't want what you have. I want who you are. And he goes and follows him. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. He doesn't seek the same things anymore. He doesn't have the same desires to you know, take advantage of the people now. He wants to give. He immediately gives a huge feast. Hoarding gave way to giving. If you're not a giver, get on your knees. Get before the Lord and say, Lord, I need to be a giver of your time, of your talent, of your treasure. There's nothing God gave us that he wants us to hold on to. It's all to be released and given 
in ministry. And that's his immediate response is giving. He gives this great feast. To, he wants to give it to Jesus, first and foremost. He wants to bless his Savior. How many of you want to bless your Savior? You want to bless the Lord. He wants to bless the Lord. But he invites a bunch of lost people, all you other tax collectors, anyone else that wants to come, come on in. Big feast on me. I owe, at minimum, I owe this to the community. I've taken advantage of many of you. Come. And by the way, this feast that he holds, what a foreshadowing too. You know, someday there's going to be a big feast with a lot of sinners in it, but it isn't going to be the sinners hosting the feast. Jesus is going to host the feast. What a foreshadowing we see here. Isn't that going to be great? You want to be part of that feast, don't you? The feast that Jesus throws, and it's only given to a bunch of sinners. Go on. And the joy that he had there, you see that he gives a great feast. It reminds me of this quote from R.A. Torrey. He said, there's more joy in Jesus in 24 hours than there is in the world in 365 days. I have tried them both. And anyone that has come to new life in Christ realizes that is so true. There is a feast at the table with Christ that you can't satisfy anywhere else. But let's look at what takes place next in this new acceptance. Jesus clearly comes and sits not only with this tax collector that has followed him, Matthew, or Levi, as Luke refers to him, but all the others that are there, eating and drinking with them, sharing his life with them, sharing his love and his gospel with them. And the Pharisees, they complained. And they said to the disciples, they didn't say to Jesus, they said, why does your master, why does he hang out with such lowlifes? These are the worst of the worst. We've excommunicated all these guys, the ones that are Jewish. Some of the tax collectors were Gentiles, the majority of them in most cases probably. But, but why would your master, why would the one you follow do what is unlawful and hang out with them? But Jesus clearly accepts them. And he says, Jesus answers them, even though they said this, uh, complained against the disciples. Jesus answers, said to them, those who are well, they don't need a physician. Now Jesus recognizes that nobody's actually well. But those that think they're well, when they're not well. But hey, if you think you're well, I'm not going to be able to convince you you think you're well, I'm not going to be able to convince you you have a need. But if you know you're not well, like David, uh, the man off the street, he knew, he said, I'm going to die out here. I'm not going to make it much longer. But if you're doing really well for yourself and you think, I pay my taxes, I'm a really good citizen. I'm one of the best citizens I know. I do all these good deeds. I'm really, really the cream of the crop. I'm doing well. I provide for my family. I've never kicked a dog even once. I got it all together. These lowlifes might need Jesus, but not me. There's a lot of people that think that way, isn't there? A lot of people think that way. But those are the ones that Jesus said, but they know they need me, and I've come to heal the brokenhearted and the sick and the lame and all these, and these are the ones that I reach out to, and I accept them 
at my table. They wouldn't be accepted at the religious leader's house. They wouldn't be invited to the religious leader's house. They're not even allowed to go, if they're Matthew, into the synagogue, which was God's place for them to worship. They could not go in because they had sacrificed that right to be a tax collector. Ephesians 1.6 says, To the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. Aren't you glad you've been accepted by Christ? There's many people that won't accept you even before Christ. That's why we're showing the video Veil of Tears. There's many women in India that are not accepted simply because they were born a woman. People that are not accepted because they were born a Dalit. People that are not accepted because they are from the other side of the tracks. All the things, all the divisions that people put up that Jesus breaks down. The very walls people put up, Jesus breaks down the middle wall of separation bringing people to himself, accepting them. I love this quote from John Newton. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. When you come to feel the acceptance of Christ, you know you've got your flaws. You know you've got your issues. You know you're far from perfect, and yet you thank God you're not what you used to be, and by His grace, you are what you are, accepted in the Beloved. Accepted by the blood of Jesus, not because you did anything special. You can't do anything special. The Pharisees and them, they wouldn't accept people because the people had not measured up to their standard. And Jesus says, My standard is, do you know you're a wretch? Yes, I know. Come on in. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only place where you have to be completely unqualified to be accepted. The complete opposite of the world system. You have to be completely unqualified and and go ahead and recognize it. And Jesus says, that's all I need to know. Come on in, I'll do the rest. He's the one that changes tax collectors. He's the one that changes... Murderers, he's the one that changes liars. He's the one that changes adulterers. He's the one that changes. All we have to say is, Lord, I need to be redeemed. And we become accepted. Later in life, John Newton, you guys know who John Newton is? He wrote Amazing Grace. You ever heard of that song? Amazing Grace. He wrote it. Former slave trader. The lowest of lows. He traded slaves. He was a mean, violent man, but he became a gentle gracious man. Only God can make that change, by the way. Mean, violent men don't become gentlemen overnight. I was reading some quotes on Joel Rosenberg's blog about Vladimir Putin. You know, he said of his own self back in the year 2000, by the way, if you read the stuff that he's said of himself, you might want to really study Ezekiel 37, 38. But you know, he said of himself, he goes, I've been called harsh and I've been called brutal. And by the way, he doesn't deny that. He goes on to say, people don't tell me what to do, I tell people what to do. Only Christ can change the heart of a Vladimir Putin. Only Christ can change the heart of someone like John Newton, who used to trade slaves like they were common animals. And later, he wept over his own sin, he became a gent. A gentle, compassionate man. He worked with William Wilberforce to get all the slaves set free in England. Did you know that? 
they actually released, they actually ended slavery in England before the United States. Took us much longer than them. And he was used by God. Sometimes it takes a former persecutor like Paul to come to the church. Sometimes it takes a former slave trader to come to the church. Sometimes it takes a tax collector to come to the church. God takes the very opposite of you think, well, that could never work, and says that's exactly what will work. And later John Newton would say in life, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. That's why he wrote Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. It was sweet to him. Is it still sweet to you? Is it still sweet to you? Or is that, ah, that song, yeah. Boy, it it should melt our hearts every time we sing it. You know the story behind it. You know, I love that in Isaiah 61, 6. Remember that Jesus stood up in the fourth chapter and read from Isaiah 61 that he'd come to preach good tidings to the poor and to heal the brokenhearted. But in the sixth verse, now this is interesting, because he calls Levi the tax collector, who's most likely from the household of Levi, most likely from the priesthood, but not allowed to go into the temple area, not allowed to go into the synagogue, excommunicated from the faith, and this is what the rest, another portion of Isaiah 61 says in the sixth verse. But you shall be named priests of the Lord, and they shall call you servants of our God. Levi might not have been accepted in the Jewish faith in the synagogue, but Jesus said, you're going to be my apostle, my priest. And I called you before the foundation of the earth, and yes, I knew your name would be Levi, and you will be a priest just like we've all been made kings and priests under the new covenant, Jesus said, I will not only heal you, but you'll be my priest. Accepted. Isn't that great? Accepted by the Lord. This new acceptance that you and I have also experienced in Christ. If you've not experienced, God wants you to experience it. And lastly, let's look at this new construct. You know, if you're new to the Scriptures, or even if you've been saved for a long time, I know that when I first got saved in 1995, and for several years after that, I, I could not totally get my arms around this whole wineskin thing. New patch on the, uh, old, pat, on the old garment and new wineskins and you know, burst the other, uh, put, the old, put the new in the old and you burst the wineskin. What, what is the Lord Jesus talking about here Exactly. I mean, I know the concept of the wineskins, but what is it? What's this point that he's making? And he talks here uh, also about the fasting and the wedding and the bridegroom and why, you know, this is why they can't fast while I'm still here. And so this whole text, the verses 33 to 39, um, you know, when I first got saved, I read it, it didn't all make a lot of sense to me. You know, when you first get saved, it takes a while for the Holy Spirit to teach you what the Word of God is saying. Some things are really easy to understand, but others, you've got to chew on them a little bit. And this is one of those texts that it's good for us to kind of understand a little more in depth what is it that Jesus is teaching, beginning with the wedding analogy and then ending with the cloth and the wineskins. Let's take a look at what he's talking about uh, he gets a question. They said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink? 
In other words, John's disciples, we have some issues with John, but at least his disciples fast. And they had plenty of issues with John. But at least his disciples fast. We'll give him that. Check mark for John. Him and his disciples fast. Of course, we fast. The most holy people in Capernaum, Galilee, and Jerusalem, and everywhere we are. We're the cream of the crop. You know we fast. But your guys don't fast. And you think you're spiritual. Your guys don't fast. Your followers don't. And Jesus then says, can you make the friend of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? And we have a comparison here, fasting versus feasting. And it's not a competition, but a comparison, because there's a time for feasting and there's a time for fasting. There's a time for weeping and there's a time for mourning. True? The Scriptures tell us this. So it's not a competition, but Jesus is drawing a comparison, say, Let me t- uh, you need to understand there's a time and place for everything. And then he, behind that, there also has to be the right motive for whatever it is you're doing. Fasting, well, there was no commandment in the law of Moses. I don't know if you knew this or not, but there was no commandment in the law of Moses to fast any other day but the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, Leviticus 16.29. There was no other fast day that was proclaimed in the law of Moses other than the Day of Atonement, which was Yom Kippur. That was the only day that the Israelites were required to fast, that one day. Now, by the time of the prophet Zechariah in Zechariah 8.19, they had begun to fast on the fourth month, fifth month, seventh month, and tenth, uh, tenth months. So there was four different days now. And that wasn't necessarily a bad thing. Some of those things were led by the Lord. But again, it wasn't now under law. It was something that they had established and agreed upon. So the Jews were then fasting as a nation on four specific, those that followed it, many didn't, but those that did were were fasting four days out of the year just related to what we see in Zechariah 8.19. Now later, under the oral law, which was given by rabbis and priests, the oral law uh, began, they began to observe fasting every Monday and Thursday related to the ascension and descension of Moses on Mount Sinai. So they would fast on Mondays and Thursdays, and this is also referenced in the Talmud and the rabbinical writings. So it had become, by the time of Jesus, anyone that was strictly following the law not only observed the four annual fasts, but they also were fasting Monday and Thursday. Now John, he was the last of the Old Covenant prophets, he was the last Old Covenant prophet. Jesus starts a new work, and after him becomes the apostles and disciples and all those that will come post-Pentecost. But John was pre-Pentecost. Of course, he dies even before Jesus does. He's beheaded. He's the last of the Old Covenant prophets. John comes under the old law to preach the new is coming. But he's not the new. He's pointing to the new. And so John... He comes in the spirit and power of Elijah, according to Luke, which we read earlier. Uh, and he and those in his ministry, they also fasted regularly. But here's the big difference. Their motives were totally different in fasting than that of the Pharisees. They didn't fast to look spiritual. 
They didn't fast to impress the people. They didn't fast to earn their way to heaven. They didn't fast to please God. They fasted because John had come to do what? He came to preach repentance and spiritual revival to Israel and to point the way to the truth and the life. And they would fast that men's hearts would rend and be broken. That's why John and his men fasted. Not because everyone else was doing it twice a week. That wasn't the reason that John and his... But Jesus doesn't even address that. He addresses himself. He says, here's why my disciples don't fast with me. And by the way, in Isaiah 58, 6, we see this verse. It says, is this not the fast I have chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, that you break every yoke? That's the kind of fast that pleases the Lord. That's the kind of fast that John and his disciples were fasting. And they knew they were doing it that Jesus would be magnified. And we see in Nehemiah 1.4, it said, "So so it was when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned and fasted many days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. It was why Esther called a fast, which we just sell, if you're Jewish, you celebrate Purim last week, and why Esther called a fast that God would, God would intervene. That type of fasting is what Jesus said will later come, and that's the fasting of John and his disciples, but that was not what was taking place with the Pharisees. They were actually fasting, and it was of great, great spiritual pride. We fast twice a week. We do all these things. Later, you know, the rich young ruler, when Jesus encounters the rich young ruler, we'll see that he, he says, I've kept all the commandments. I even fast twice a week. He was following the same model, the Monday, Thursday model. But that wasn't good enough. That's not what God was looking for. But Jesus is saying to them, look, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bride is here? Now, the problem is they don't believe he's the bridegroom. Like, you don't know who I am or don't believe who I am. You certainly won't know or understand why I'm doing and what I do and why I do what I do because you don't receive my witness. But the Lord explains, nevertheless, he does some explaining for them. Remember when Jesus was born? Remember the angels rejoiced? Everyone rejoiced. It was in the small group of people that saw his birth. The shepherds rejoiced. The angels rejoiced. It was a joyous thing. Joy to the world. The Lord has come, right? Jesus had come into the world. Israel had waited centuries for his arrival. The light had dawned there in Zebulon. The bridegroom had come to gather his bride. Or at least, well, he's coming to gather his bride later. But he had come to present himself to his bride. He will come later and gather his bride. That's the second coming of Christ. But he'd come to present himself to his bride. I am the bridegroom. He calls his bride. Matthew, the tax collector, is part of the bride. You and whatever you came from, you're part of the bride. And he's come and he's called the bride to himself. And Jesus, while he was physically on the earth, um, he's making the point that I am the bridegroom, and those that are with me that have been called to me They will not fast, they will celebrate while I'm here. In the Jewish tradition, the wedding was a week-long celebration of joy and meals and feasts with family and friends. Uh, In fact, even elements of the law were set aside during this time 
to keep the entire week a time of fasting and rejoicing. So parts of the law were even set aside. It was just a whole time of rejoicing. And for most people, even today, their wedding day is a joyful day. How many of you had a good time on your wedding day? Yeah, I hope you did. Now, there are some bad stories that we hear from time to time. You know, we can't control all circumstances. But for the most part, most people are excited. They're smiling. There's carefully picked food. There's the first dance, the cake, lots of pictures, lots of pictures, too many pictures, (laughs) hugs, toast to the bride and groom, It's a great time, and we don't even do a week-long celebration. We do a one-day. Today, we do like three hours, and it's over, but not there. It was like a week-long celebration of the wedding feast. Now, I can't recall seeing or hearing of a wedding invite that ever said the following, we'll be fasting, come join us for our wedding. I've never seen it. Maybe you have. I have never seen one. Come to our fasting wedding. We're not having anything, nothing. Where none of us are eating, none of you are eating. It's a fasting wedding, because we're really spiritual. That's the way we do it here. You're gonna have, but you're going to have a good time. God created marriage to be celebrated. And as you know, Jesus' first public miracle was at a wedding, a wedding in Cana. Universally, cultures celebrate and rejoice at weddings. But even though everyone celebrates at weddings... Even beyond just the wedding day, we even refer to the early part of marriage as the honeymoon phase. The honeymoon phase. And some of you cynical ones look at people that are in their honeymoon phase, "Ah, yeah, give them a month or two. Give them a year. When reality sets in. Remember, a pessimist is just an optimist with experience. Right? But what happens? Really, what happens in any marriage? Well, a few years later, think about like dad's out of town on a business trip. And his trip is not going well. He's got a bad cold. The meetings have gone bad. He's missed a flight. Everything's gone poorly. Meanwhile, mom's at home and both kids have the flu. One threw up at one in the morning all over everything. Neither are thinking about the wedding day at that moment. It's not coming into the mind, generally speaking. If it is, it's even more bothersome. Why did it stay that way? While Jesus was physically on the earth, those that were walking with him were walking with the one that could move mountains, heal anybody, raise the sick. Restore anything to anyone. They rejoiced to be alongside the hope of Israel and the light of the world. They were rejoicing to walk with him. But when Jesus would be physically taken from the earth, when he'd be physically taken away, the church would still be married to the groom, but things would be more difficult. True? You're no less married when the kids are throwing up and your husband's 3,000 miles away than you were on the wedding day. You're still married, but you're not having the same time of rejoicing. It's not a party day. It's not a feast time. It's a time to dig in deep and say, God, get me through. Right? This is the church. Jesus, while I was there, they were introduced to the groom 
and they were part of the wedding pre-ceremony. There's still a fulfillment of all this later. But when I go away, well, then that's when the rubber hits the road, and they're going to need to fast. And when they fast, it'll be reasons like John's guys, not yours. They will fast, but it will be in desperation. We fast on Thursdays here. We don't fast on Thursdays to be holy. We don't fast on Thursdays uh, to prove a point. We don't fast on Thursdays uh, to make sure we've checked the box. We fast on Thursdays because our nation needs revival and we have a lot of issues, even in our own church, that God needs to deal with. That's why. And some of you fast other times. Praise the Lord, I'm glad you do. You draw near because God tells you to do it. You're not doing it to make a point. Matter of fact, Jesus would later tell people how to fast. Wash your face so no one can even tell. Be happy. Put a big smile on your face. They, when, they would fast on mon- when they would fast on Mondays and Thursdays, we're fasting today. Religious hypocrisy. Fasting is about motive, not legalism. Paul said in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty seven, fasting's often. There is a reason to fast, but it has to be for the right reasons. And when Jesus was with them, it wasn't the time. But when he leaves, we all need to fast at times. We all need to cry out in desperation. We all need to fast over a problem that is just not going away, a marriage that's in trouble, a kid that has gone away and is a prodigal. Those type things merit us fasting before the Lord and many other things. Coming to a close here, this uh, section 36 through 39, about Jesus talks about putting a, uh, a piece from a new garment on an old one and the fact that when you do that, you put the new patch on the old tears. This, by the way, this still works today. If you want to take an old, old uh, piece of uh, fabric and that's actually done lots of washings and you put a new one on it, it will, the new exp- when the new um, contracts, it'll rip. You know, the new contracts, it also is going to shrink. You know, things that are 100% cotton, we all buy it and say, I wonder if this is going to fit after I wash it and dry it. There's always that weird in-between that you can never figure out if it's going to work or not, Right? Is it going to shrink this much? Is it going to shrink this much? We just don't know. But if it's 100% cotton, we know it's going to shrink. So things that have already shrunk, if you took something brand new that hadn't been washed and shrunk and all the shrinkage has come out of it, you put it on there, when it shrinks, it would tear and it pop off. They understood this in Jesus' day. We understand the same concept. But what is he talking about? These new wineskins. You had to put new wine in new wineskins, Old wine was already in old wineskins. They hadn't removed it. They would just pour it out, and when it was done, it was done. Wineskins, by the way, they're usually made from sheep and goat skins, and they would sew them together, and they'd sew them all the way up to a little nozzle at the top, and they'd have a, a, a fastening agent of some type that they would put on the top of it, and they'd cork it. And when you put new wine in, if you're familiar with anything about wine, when you put new wine in, as it begins to oxidize and the gases go out, it actually expands. So you have to have, the leather has to be able to expand with it. But if you did, if you put new wine that was expanding into an old wineskin, they would burst. So you had to match them up. You wouldn't take, put new wine in an old wineskin. And they understood this concept. But you want to understand that what he's applying here is... Jesus is 
laying the foundation of the new covenant versus the old covenant. Remember, John is the last of the old covenant prophets. John is mentioned in the text. Jesus addresses that. Jesus is the becoming of the new covenant. He is the new, his blood will be the new covenant. He's the new covenant. And notice one thing about old wineskins and new wineskins. They both have the same origin. They're both the same type of skins. They both have the same designers. They were both of value. Neither were thrown out. They would both sit by, side by self on a shelf or in a room or in a cellar. But you had to understand that applying the new to the old could cause damage. If you try to apply the new covenant to the old covenant, under the new covenant, now that we're under, it can be damaging. And vice versa. This is why Paul ended up writing to the Galatians. The Galatians tried to return to the old covenant. They wanted to return to the law, return to circumcision, return to you must observe the Sabbath. All of these things, they wanted to return to the old covenant. And Paul said, time out. No, 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 no. You're disrupting and not understanding the grace of the new covenant. You're tearing, you're trying to sew an old patch on a new garment. This would, be, this would be something the church would deal with well after Jesus. The old, well, the old covenant, the law was beautiful. It was given by God. But guess what? Nobody ever kept it. Nobody. Not a single person until Jesus. Jesus kept the entire law, every jot, every tittle. He was the only one. Moses didn't keep it. Ezekiel didn't keep it. David didn't keep it. We know he didn't keep it, even though he was a man after God's own heart. Galatians 3.24 says, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by the faith. Jesus tells the Pharisees, Look, the old was to bring you to the knowledge you can't do this on your own. You aren't perfect. Even the apostles knew this. In Acts chapter 15, when the law of circumcision came up, they said this in Acts 15, 10 through 11. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? The apostles said, we can't even keep the law. Our fathers, could, Moses couldn't keep it. None of them could keep the law. But we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. This is speaking of Gentiles that we're being told to put under the, be put back under the law. That you can't be saved unless you're following the law. Every single aspect of it. And they said, no, no, the new covenant, our forefathers couldn't keep it, neither can we. The new covenant, though, Jesus, <coughs> and by the way, one thing to know, <coughs> to be clear, the religious leaders, they did add to the law on top of everything else. They added heavy burdens that men couldn't bear. Uh, but even if they hadn't, no one could keep the old law. Nobody could keep the old covenant. You could try your best, but when you tried your best, then pride would set in. And you then, well, I keep it, nobody else does. But the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 32 says this. Thir Jeremiah 31, verse 31 through 32. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers 
in that day I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a, listen to this, husband to them. Same imagery. Under the old covenant, God was a husband to Israel. Under the new covenant, Jesus is the husband or the groom to the body of Christ, which includes both Jew and Gentile, because Paul being uh, Jewish, or like Luke being Gentile. So, and then the new covenant, same concept, God is presenting himself as the husband or the groom to his chosen people, now the body of Christ. But you cannot earn your way into this relationship, it comes by grace. And Jesus upsets the paradigm of the religious leaders. He fulfilled the law to perfection, but was bringing with his death and resurrection, he was bringing the age of grace. Aren't you thankful for that? And you know, Jesus, interestingly enough, I don't know if you knew this, hang with me for two more minutes. This is really important to understand. Jesus upset the paradigm of the religious leaders. And he, like I said, he He is the manifestation of grace. He brought grace. But you know that Jesus never taught, at least recorded. He may have taught it, but the Holy Spirit did not have it recorded. Not in Matthew, not in Mark, not in Luke, not in John. We have no recorded of Jesus himself specifically teaching on the doctrine of grace, though he was the manifestation of grace. In other words, we don't see him defining it and saying, This is what grace is. All he did is he came and presented himself as grace. But later, Paul taught on grace. Peter taught on grace. James taught on grace. Paul mentions the word grace 23 times in Romans alone. See, Jesus demonstrated grace, and his death on the cross was the provision of grace, but he left the teaching of it The teaching of it he left with the apostles and the prophets after Pentecost. Why? I don't know. That's a simple answer I get. I do not know why Jesus didn't do all the teaching on it himself. He left it with the prophets. But you know what? This isn't new. He's always done that. He had Moses teach on things that God could have taught himself. He had David teach on things that God could have taught himself. He had Jeremiah teach on things that God could have taught himself. He had the apostles and the prophets write the new covenant doctrines that were founded on the cornerstone of Jesus' death and resurrection. And that's why you have the epistles. And that's why you have the writings of Paul and the understanding of the new covenant. He's always entrusted men, but they were always his men. He didn't entrust the Pharisees with this stuff. They were his men that he has given. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, 16 through 18, shall let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. That's what Paul's explaining is all the old law, all the old covenant was pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. But like the Pharisees, look at the last verse, we'll come to a close here. And no one having drunk old wine immediately desires the new, for he says the old is better. Boy, aren't we sometimes stuck in our ways. The Pharisees, they had the newness of Christ in their presence. I mean, who else was casting out demons? Who else was healing lepers? And still their arms were folded and said, that ain't better than that Monday, Thursday fasting. 
Mm-mm. That's not better than us getting pats on the back in the marketplace. We got ourselves a niche, and we like it. And Jesus is saying, come to me, and let me just give you the newness of life. Let me do a new work in you like I did in Matthew. Amen? Let's come to a close. Father, we thank you this morning for your amazing grace. you that you really do a new work that is amazing that is beyond our comprehension that you would save a wretch like us and lord that you transform us and we can't keep your law to perfection but we thank you that you've kept it and we're covered by the blood of jesus and when you see us you see the perfection of christ not our imperfections And Lord, we would ask that you would help us to be open, to always be open to the new work you want to do. Even those of us who are now walking in Christ, Lord, there's new things you want to do. There's new things you will do. And that our lives will be yielded to that work. That we won't be the resistant Pharisee, but that we'll be the tender-hearted disciple of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, I'm going to have... We'll be around after the service. You know, if, you, if there's something you heard and say, man, I, I've never given my life to Christ. I want to do that. I'll be around after the service. I'm glad to stay and talk to anybody or one of the elders, one of the deacons we can uh, spend time with. You've never given your life to Christ. You can do that today. You don't have to. You know, David got saved there in Brooklyn Tabernacle after the service, right? It was after the service. And uh, so we'll be around after the service. If you've never given your life to Christ and it's something you want to do, don't put it off. You'll always wonder why I waited. 